There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The revolution might be over. But before we examine the most dramatic and striking aspect of the rising, we need to dwell on a few more issues first. This episode is important for contextualizing more key issues. We will examine how the rebels were viewed by contemporary opinion as good, clean fighters. We will see how the rising shaped the way media was digested and reported. We will see the breakdown in civil order and sympathy for the regime caused by the General Maxwell's insistence on rounding up so many citizens. We will remind you guys that Patrick Pierce and his ideals were a product of his time, and that to understand them and the rising we have to understand the era that they lived in. If this sounds good to you, then welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries Exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history. The 1916 Rising. Happy are those who die for a temporal land, when a just war calls and they obey and go forth. Happy are they who die for a handful of earth, happy are they who die in so noble a band. Happy are they who die in their country's defence, lying outstretched before God with upturned faces. Happy are they who die in those last high places, such funeral nights have great magnificence. French Poet Charles Peggy, writing in The Myth of the Holy Innocents, 1911. There was something ignoble and bungling in the whole proceeding. What a contrast to all this seemed to be the behaviour of the rebel leaders. They were foolish, insane as it appears to us, but insanely honest and sincere. Nothing ignoble or mean or ungenerous has ever been proved against them. The inevitable reaction in England in their favour when the truth gradually emerged was very strong, and its influence is still felt. The necessity to win through in this war to an honourable peace has not been weakened by these events, but the old confidence that we were the champions of small nations, that ours was a holy war, and that we could never succumb to militarism, has received a shock. 
English pacifist and socialist writer Douglas Goldring, writing in 1917. As a rebellion, it was a ridiculous failure from the first, but as an event in Irish history it was horrible and heartbreaking, and being accompanied by house-to-house fighting, sniping and murdering, it stains the memory. It was a supreme act of criminal folly on the part of those who were responsible for it, for it never had a chance, and was really never more than a Dublin row. The account of Augustine Burrell, Ireland's chief secretary during the time of the Rising, writing in a later memoir, Things Past Redress, 1937. In previous episodes, we've established that sacrifice and the idea of dying for the good of the nation were not exclusively Irish ideas. Patrick Pearce was not the only man before 1916 to express a desire to die for the good of the nation. He was not the first to argue that through his death others would be inspired to act as he had acted, and thus he could play a far more effective and noble role in death than he could in life. Perhaps the most striking theme of this entire miniseries, in my view, was the way the First World War transformed the narrative. Not only did it change Irish history, but to many in Europe and Britain, the outbreak of war was viewed as the end of the decadent ways, and a return to the values and practices of mankind of old. The idea in 1914 that the new generation wanted to redeem themselves that they believed in the cleansing power of their debts to empower their national pride by inspiring their countrymen to victory is also a theme we have encountered before. We have used Serbia's black hand as an example a number of times, but for a few minutes here, strange as it may seem, we're going to look at France, where ideas of national honour had reached a fever pitch by 1914. The cult of the offensive, the spectacle of dying for one's country, of defeating one's enemies, of turning back the tide against modernity, and embracing the older values of honour and glory. These were principles espoused by French thinkers before the war broke out. Perhaps the most striking French equivalent to that of Patrick Pierce was the French poet, Charles Peggy. Peggy was obsessed with the idea that his generation was the final hope for France. That war would be the best opportunity to save the true elements of what French culture and its national honour represented. How would France go about saving itself? By offering up Peggy's generation as a sacrifice, a sacrifice Peggy willingly wished to participate in. Through such a sacrifice, Peggy believed that if he could restore France to its old glory, he could redeem her. Time was running out for his generation though. And if they didn't act soon, it may be too late to turn back the clock of modernity and return to the French glories of old. In 1913, Charles wrote, We are the last, almost beyond the last. Immediately after us begins another age, a quite different world. The world of those who no longer believe in anything. Peggy saw Catholic France as embodying all of the integral aspects of French morality and culture, 
which he viewed as so important for keeping his generation and the unborn generations of France on the right path. He said, Our Christian sanctities are plunged into the modern world. In this abyss of incredulity, of disbelief, of unfaithfulness, isolated like beacons, vainly assailed during three centuries of raging, furious sea. The holy war is everywhere. It is ever being waged. All of us stand in the breach today. We are all stationed on the frontier. The frontier is everywhere. Piggy encapsulated all of these beliefs into the national myth, which itself was personified by Joan of Arc, the legendary martyr whose death inspired Frenchmen to fight the English during the One Hundred Years' War. Perhaps drawing inspiration from such a sacrifice, Piggy argued repeatedly that the national myth was the most holy and sacred idea for a citizen to pledge his service to. A man could pledge himself to serve the national myth by fighting for it in war, but he could serve it best by sacrificing his own life. Nothing is as murderous as weakness or cowardice, Piggy wrote. Nothing is as humane as firmness. To Charles Piggy, France was in a state of crisis where only an embracing of her old values could save her from the decadence, materialism and waste of modernity. Just as Joan of Arc had redeemed the French nation and inspired her to win against the English, Piggy insisted that France could win against the German enemy only once Frenchmen willingly readied themselves to die for the ultimate ideal of the nation. To serve the national myth, in Piggy's mind, meant personal redemption and the inspiration of future generations of Frenchmen, as well as the awakening of all of France from its docility in so many years of peace. With all that we have just learned about Charles Piggy, his resistance against modernity, his fear that France had lost some of itself in the years of peace, his assertion that the current generation had to redeem her, his belief that a national myth could serve this, his selection of a figurehead or symbol for that myth, his belief that sacrifice would inspire an awakening in France. Imagine if Charles Piggy was replaced by Patrick Pierce, and if France were replaced by Ireland, and perhaps you can see what I'm getting at with this line of thinking. Piggy had Joan of Arc, Patrick Pierce had Cú Cullen, both in his school and as a figure to which he looked, personally as a mythic hero, representative of the kind of sacrifice that could serve the nation. Piggy wanted to inspire France to awaken from its years of peace and decadence, to embrace its old glorious past and culture. Pierce wanted Ireland to abandon English cultural influences and materialism and return to a Gaelic traditionalism. Piggy believed that the current generation of France were the last hope to achieve such an end. Patrick Pierce felt that this generation had to act with urgency to redeem the generations that had tried and failed before. Charles Piggy believed that self-sacrifice was necessary to achieve the redemption of the nation. Patrick Pierce saw the giving of one's life as the purest and greatest form of national and personal redemption, because of the inspiration it would create and the myth it would perpetuate. Both men held Christian beliefs. Both men compared the sacrifice to a Christ-like deed. This little side note that I just went on and on and on about here was one of the points put forward by Sean Farrell Moran in his book Patrick Pierce and the Politics of Redemption. I feel it is an important comparison to make because in my view it goes another step towards demonstrating a fact that is too often forgotten today 
that the 1916 Rising ideas of sacrifice were not especially unique. Instead, they were a product of their time. Warren concludes by saying, Like many intellectuals before the Great War, Pierce was concerned about the threat of modernity. Although there is little evidence to show that he was acquainted with these European thinkers like Charles Pagui directly, the morphological relationship of his ideas to concurrent developments in European thinking is striking. His anxiety was more than just coincidence. It was a manifestation of the anxieties of the age, a result of a complex set of influences that affected others in similar ways. Numerous intellectuals had come to fear that spiritual values and categories were eroding before the power of positivism, reason, and science. Theirs was not an original concern, but it was nonetheless an intense and often depressing one, usually expressed in terms of a threat to their nation. Hence, for Pierce and many other Irishmen, the sentiments of the generation of 1914 hearkened back to traditions from the Gaelic past. Pierce and his colleagues were living in a chaotic, crisis-laden and violence-driven world. In such a world, surrounded by such an atmosphere, I said before that it would be naive for us if we discounted the influences that came not just from other countries, but from the time period in general. And Charles Pagui, I feel, is proof of this idea. He had so many ideas and values in common with Pierce, even if they may never have met. I would guarantee that individuals like him could be found living in Germany, Russia, and even Britain if you looked hard enough. Basically what this little side note does is hopefully demonstrate that Patrick Pierce was not an original creation. Certainly not as original in his ideas about sacrifice as Irish statesmen or personalities would have you believe today. Another final thing Charles Pugui would have in common with Patrick Pierce, he would put his money where his considerable mouth was, at least insofar as dying for his cause is concerned. In September 1914, he would lead a suicidal charge against an impregnable German position, and would die instantly from a bullet wound through the forehead. No doubt he believed to the end that his death would not be in vain, and that France would draw inspiration from it. Pierce, as he waited in prison for the verdict in early May 1916, may not have had a clue about who Charles Pigui was or had been, but one phrase uttered by the Frenchman would surely have provided him with comfort. In September 1909, Charles Pigui had said, Surrender is essentially an operation by means of which we set out explaining instead of acting. Patrick Pierce, having surrendered on the 29th of September alongside his rebel comrades, had finished acting, and now the process of explaining began. For so long, Irish people had not understood the message Pierce had sought to disseminate. Now that he and his colleagues had acted, Irish men and women would have that message explained to them again, and fully and properly. What Pierce had so long anticipated was that it would be the British, through their actions to the Rising, who would undertake the process of explaining. Only once the British had succeeded in bungling the state's official response to the revolt would the Irish people begin to understand what Pierce and his colleagues had tried to do. Now with all those responsible in custody, as well as many others who had nothing to do with what had taken place during the Rising, a response, a punishment, was required. Just as Pierce had taken his cues from the world he lived in, Britain took its cue from the war it continued to fight. 
As far as London was concerned, the Rising was merely an extension of that war. A moral problem facing the British officials who wanted to treat the rebels as if their revolt had been an extension of the war was the following. Having fought a clean fight in the name of whatever ends, by identifying themselves as an enemy of Britain during the war, the British surely had no more justification to shoot the Irish rebels than they would have if they had captured German soldiers seeking to overthrow the British Empire, by definition of their fact that they were waging war against the British Empire, on the Western Front. Should the Irish rebels not instead be held as prisoners of war until the war had ended? During their so-called trials, Sean McDermott, Tom Clark and Joseph Plunkett all loudly announced their contempt for the legality and legitimacy of the proceedings, while Pierce and James Connolly saw the trial as their opportunity to launch a speech and have it recorded for the posterity by the stenographer present. Eamon Kant disputed the shaky evidence used against him and also tried to portray the proceedings as illegal. The findings of the courts were strangely arbitrary, insofar as certain individuals like Major John McBride, for example, would be sentenced to death, while others like Eamon de Valera would have their sentence commuted. John McBride was second in command of a group of men in the region in Jacob's Biscuit Factory, a place that saw comparatively little action. While Eamon de Valera had commanded the men who defended Mount Street Bridge, where in excess of 200 British soldiers lost their lives in a military massacre. Surely, one would think, the man responsible for holding that place would be the first to die. Yet, McBride was sentenced to death instead, and de Valera would go on to become one of Ireland's most renowned statesmen. The shady nature of the proceedings did not take long to irk the Irish populace. This is the now well-understood second phase of the 1916 Rising, wherein the British managed to antagonise public opinion by treating the rebels with an unjustified harshness. Over the course of a fortnight, national sympathy had begun to turn towards the rebels. This leads us to another important aspect of the Rising and how it was viewed at the time. After having learned of the martyrdom of the rebels and appreciating that their battles against the British had been undertaken against hopeless odds, a narrative emerged which depicted the rebels as fighting the clean, honourable fight against the cold, mechanised efficiency of the British. This perception grew as the British response to the rising in the weeks and months afterwards intensified. Even with the executions, martial law remained in place, and many hundreds were known to still languish in prison without trial in England. What you had then was a kind of twofold transformation where the public anger at how the British had conducted themselves and how the regime continued to restrict Irish freedoms was contrasted with the selflessness of the rebels, of their willingness to sacrifice, of their passionate desire for Ireland to amount to something more than an oppressed client of the British Empire. Thus, the wheels began to turn in the minds of ordinary Irish citizens, who viewed the actions and subsequent deaths of the rebels in more idealised terms. This was greatly helped, of course, by the expectations of the rebels themselves, who had prepared the ground ahead of them, in the belief that the Irish people would want to read about them, their beliefs and their ambitions once they had died. It was the idea of leaving a legacy behind and preparing Ireland for its future that motivated men like Patrick Pearce to write so many letters home from his prison cell, or James Connolly to pass a note to his daughter the night before his death, or for all the men involved to leave mementos of some kind behind them. 
safe in the knowledge that their revolt had been launched, that the proclamation had been made for the Republic and that, whatever happened now, their work had been accomplished, the rebels became more certain of their imminent vindication for acting. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the first place, Patrick Pierce's oration during his trial was both eloquent and powerful, and a characteristically moving description of his life's purpose. When I was a child of ten, I went down on my bare knees by my bedside one night and promised God that I should devote my life in an effort to free my country. If you strike us down now, we shall rise again and renew the fight. You cannot reconquer Ireland. You cannot extinguish the Irish passion for freedom. If our deed has not been sufficient to win freedom, then our children will win it by a better deed. Sean McDermott was equally as certain in his final statement. I go to my death for Ireland's cause as fearlessly as I have worked that sacred cause during all my short life. Let our present day place hunters condemn our action as they will. Posterity will judge us right from the effects of our actions. When Eamon Kant's wife tried to tell him that the entire rising had been an awful fiasco, he claimed that, No, it was the biggest thing since 98. In reference to the 1798 rebellion, in which the United Irishmen at the time had risen up against the British authority and died as a consequence from the British punishment. References to that rebellion, and repeated attempts by Patrick Pearce to invoke Robert Emmett, Irish martyr of the 1803 rebellion, demonstrated that the rebels were inspired by the actions of the dead generations who had acted thusly in the past. It was even in the first line of the Irish proclamation, if you can remember, wherein it was stated that the Republic was being proclaimed in the name of God and of the dead generations. In previous episodes, when we have sought to get to grips with the motives and ideology of the rebels who launched the Rising, Tradition has emerged as a surprisingly strong motivating force for all involved. 
Blood sacrifice, a sense of urgency, and the need to provide inspiration can be considered as other motives, but tradition meant upholding the unbroken line of revolts launched against the British establishment. Such revolts had shown their contemporaries at the time of the revolts in 1798, 1803, 1848 and 1867 that the Fenians would always be willing to resort to force to achieve Irish independence and that by acting in 1916 the rebels could invoke those rebellions of the past and claim their inheritance as a new, dead generation which would provide the inspiration to Irish patriots in the future. Had they not acted, they would never have been justified in claiming to be the successors of the rebellious Irish, but by acting they reminded their contemporaries that Ireland would always provide soldiers for her cause of freedom. The leaders of 1916 had spent many years trying to tap into the actions of those that had acted before, and whether they welcomed or merely anticipated their coming deaths, none expected their ends to be in vain. James Connolly's aforementioned note that he slipped into his daughter's hands in her last visit to his hospital bed before his execution demonstrated the belief in the most striking terms that the real power of the Irish rebels' actions would be found in the inspiration they imbued into the Irish people once they had gone. Connolly's note said, We went out to break the connection between this country and the British Empire and to establish an Irish Republic. We succeeded in proving that Irishmen are ready to die, endeavouring to win for Ireland their national rights, which the British government has been asking them to die to win for Belgium. As long as that remains the case, the cause of Irish freedom is safe. By the time Connolly wrote these words, he had already been made aware of the ongoing arrests of mostly innocent Irish by Maxwell's disastrous policy to round up all he believed even remotely involved in the Rising. Arthur Griffiths, the leader of Sinn Féin, was arrested, as was Owen McNeill, Chief of Staff of the Irish Volunteers. Both men had opposed Irish involvement in the First World War, and were perhaps more advanced nationalists than that of John Redmond in the Irish Parliamentary Party, insofar as they represented a distinct other way for constitutional nationalists to go. Yet both had supported Home Rule in the past, and they had always deplored the use of violence. Now these men were face to face with the fact that violent men and ideals had been running rampant in their organisations for the past few years, and right under their noses. It is difficult to imagine which man would have been more perplexed or hurt by events. Owen McNeill had been duped, lied to and then shamed by the events of 1916, stunting that rising's impact by giving countermanning orders for Saturday, which were later ignored by many Irish leaders anyway. His volunteers had broken away to protect home rule and oppose British plans to disarm their important point of leverage, but now McNeil had to admit that a significant minority of volunteers had fought during the Easter week, and that a good many more would have been willing to fight alongside the ranks of the Irish Republican Brotherhood if the Rising had continued past Saturday's surrender. Arthur Griffith, on the other hand, was placed in the strange position as leader of Sinn Féin when Sinn Féin suddenly meant a vastly different thing to what it used to. Before 1916, Sinn Féin was the alternative political organisation dedicated to finding a different way other than home rule to govern Ireland. It was arguably more intensely nationalist, but not necessarily republican. 
Its members regularly could be seen at other meetings for the Gaelic League, the Ancient Order of Hibernians and the Irish Volunteers, though in the highly politicised atmosphere of the pre-1916 world, this was not exactly unusual. What was unusual was how Sinn Féin came to be seen after the Rising took place. After many months of referring colloquially to anyone professing membership in an active Irish organisation as a Sinn Féiner, the media was quick to apply the moniker to the entire Rising, deeming it the Sinn Féin Rebellion after only a few days. This, coupled with an undoubted overlap of members and the range of extremist individuals that operated within them, meant that Sinn Féin was perceived as having the leading role in the Rising in the weeks that followed. It was only after much untangling of events following the trials that the British establishment would be willing to admit its ignorance. But still, Irish history developed very much because of this incredible error on the part of the medias, the official governments and the public's perception of events. Within a few years, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Irish Citizens' Army, the Irish Volunteers and especially Cumann Naban would almost cease to exist in the popular narratives of the Rising. Instead, it was Sinn Féin that had launched and now embodied the Rising, and former rebels and Republican activists fulfilled this prophecy by joining the Sinn Féin party in droves, dramatically radicalising it in the process. This was a point echoed by Dermot Ferreter when he noted, That it was being referred to as the Sinn Féin Rebellion, it was no such thing, and the public revulsion at the executions, meant moderates like Arthur Griffith would have an opportunity to exploit the newfound and misplaced fame of their small organisation, though where exactly the more radical Republicans would fit into the changed political environment outside was far from clear. This is the shorthand story of how Sinn Féin came to be transformed from a constitutionally nationalist party to the most radical element of Irish politics on the island, while also enjoying the full support of Republicans from this point onwards. The increase in interest in the Rising, and the growing sympathy for its characters, had a lot to do with another underrated aspect of 1916 as an era as well. The style and methods through which battles or situations could be reported on by early 1916 were still very much subjected to censorship, but the Rising had the effect of changing this. Before the Rising, it was very hard to encounter much details or context about battles, about the protagonists or the regions that the limited number of photographs provided a glimpse into. Thanks to the Rising, a rake of eyewitness accounts, lucky escapes, amateur photographs and even real film brought a new element to war reporting that had yet to fully materialise by that point. For a short time at least, there was great interest in the United Kingdom over how and why a small band of extremists had managed to transform the second city of the United Kingdom into a battlefield eerily reminiscent of Flanders, Ypres or Louvain. What made the reports on the Rising more special though was the increased availability of information and the plethora of photographs which provided the context that British and Irish readers normally never got from their regular papers. By virtue of its place in Dublin and in the communications centre of the city at that, in the general post office, messages and judgments from those that were there at the time or who were learning of the news were easily found. Irish people flocked to their capital in the weeks that followed, 
with a view towards gathering some kind of souvenir, but also because they wanted to feel for themselves what the Western Front was really like by experiencing the carnage left behind in Dublin. The Rising certainly hadn't treated Dublin as bad as the battles in Ypres had treated Belgium, for example, but to Irish citizens and even some British ones, it was a unique peek into a world that they had only previously seen depicted in their morning paper. The experience changed many, but it also represented a change in how news was reported from then on. By the time of the Somme in July, newspapers were able to gather far more information and present a far more complete picture than before. The Rising didn't necessarily change overnight how Britain reported on its war experiences, but it did give its citizens a taste of reality. With the greater availability of information for the Rising, it was harder for British citizens to go back in the dark for subsequent events. By the time of the Battle of the Somme, the media aspect of the war would be more opened up, and newsreels of the Somme and the mass casualties therein were visible. This lent greater credence to the debates about the war's morality and about its brutality. Significantly, comments were made about the lack of honour in losses on such a large scale. Where was the morality, the manliness or the sense in marching so many men to their deaths on such costly campaigns? Readers learning of the 1916 Rising by contrast could reason that, whatever the motives and sanity of the rebels, they had fought a good clean fight, accounted themselves honourably and shown a tremendous bravery against hopeless odds. Such a style of fighting ironically resonated more with the Victorian idea of what warfare was all about than the images of trench warfare with its failed artillery barrages, shell shortages, mechanised warfare and so many hundreds of thousands of deaths. By this point a gap had unquestionably opened up between what Britons believed their men were fighting like and what warfare actually looked like. The rebels were the old expectation to some, while the British soldier of today relied on overwhelming numbers and numbingly efficient tactics to get by. It was a disillusioning realisation for many and it helped greatly to bolster the anti-war movement which would only grow as the years went on in the face of conscription in Britain. A further aspect of the rebels' actions that resonated with onlookers was their serious willingness to die for their cause. This evoked a great deal more admiration in 1916 than it would do in today's society. The apparent bravery and recklessness with which the rebels treated their lives in the pursuit of their cause was a powerful message to citizens used to lamenting losses as casualties and victory as being found in overawing your enemy by force. It was obviously understood that the rebels had militarily lost, there was no denying that, but because their loss had been so incredibly dramatic and laden with a kind of selfless patriotism, Their message was as striking as it was admirable. People were simply not used to the idea of sacrifice for the common good, certainly not in the blatant or romantic terms that sacrifice was described by the rebel leaders. On the eve of his execution, Patrick Pierce would claim, We seem to have lost. We have not lost. To refuse to fight would have been to lose. To fight is to win. Thus we return to the motives of the perhaps less romantic rebels that led the Rising, such as Tom Clark or Sean McDermott, who had recognised the importance of fighting even if such a fight were in vain. 
Fighting showed that despite all the odds, Fenians would uphold the traditions of their ancestors and put the importance of their own lives behind that of the cause. They hoped that, in this exercise, Ireland would be inspired to break out of her docility and tread a more sovereign path. It was into the atmosphere of creeping sympathy caused by a harsh British response and governance in the weeks following the Rising that new images and impressions of the rebels started to develop. A great source of such impressions came from those that had originally opposed the British war effort, such as Sylvia Pankhurst, renowned suffragette organisation leader. Sylvia had split from her sister and mother over their support for the First World War, which she still opposed, and the 1916 Rising gave her the chance to voice her combined approval for the rebels and criticism of the British reply. She said, The rebels knew well by their reckless bravery that they would be defeated, that their rebellion was but a stage in the long-running struggle for Irish independence. All the harm that a handful of patriots could inflict would be as nothing when compared with the dastardly deed of the English government, which had Dublin ruined by machine guns and artillery, and was only held back from raising it to the ground, as the Germans did to the Belgian towns, by the surrender of the Patriots. The ultimate aim of such a portrayal of events, according to Claire Wills in her book GPO Dublin, was to downplay the aspects of the rising that smacked of the militarist coup, and to reveal the hollowness of the wartime rhetoric of British honour pitted against German brutality. Depicting the rebels as peaceful patriots was a task greatly aided by the murder of Francis Sheehy Skeffington on the Wednesday morning of Easter week. This event, as we examined in the past, was an incredibly tragic and unnecessary act, committed in the heat of the moment by an individual who was likely not of sound mind, but it also happened to provide a boon for the pro-rebel accounts. Francis Sheehy Skeffington's death enabled journals ranging from Christian pacifist to socialist to express sympathy with the noble aims of the rebels, as well as the deplorable methods of the British and the war which had so clearly brutalised them. One journal, the Christian pacifist periodical Truth, referred to such events as Sheehy Skeffington's death to prove that the war was inherently barbaric. It said, Possibly everybody had more or less lost their heads, but they must have been nearly as mad as the captain if they did not see that he was bent on cold-blooded murder and that their duty as soldiers was to stop him, even at some risk to themselves. If he had ordered the firing party to shoot one another or to shoot him, would they have done so? It almost looks like it. Even taken alone, this extract raises interesting ideas which would unfortunately become more common as the century progressed. One can imagine the soldiers making use of the excuse that they were just following orders when they shot Francis Sheehy Skeffington among others. Similarly, the massacres of civilians and numerous cover-ups therein at North King Street spring to mind, which we examined in episode 12. With the presence of 20,000 British soldiers in the city by mid-May 1916, martial law in place, restrictions on daily life and rumours filtering in about how the rebels were being treated in custody, not to mention claims that many were being executed in secret, it is little wonder that the opinion of average Dublin citizens began to turn against the British. At first it would have been mere ripples of discontent, 
not yet mature enough in disaffection to lead logically as ideas towards the expulsion of the British. Ireland in the weeks after the Rising wanted answers and fair treatment, not a republic separate from London. The problem, of course, was that Britain was not operating as it had during the pre-war years. Ireland was governed as though a rebellious province would have been governed in a far-off colonial land, with the result again of the Irish being treated as secondary citizens, not worthy of the trust of Britons, in the months that followed. There is serious mileage in the claim that the Rising was one act, participated in by two actors. The first was the rebels that instigated the revolt in Dublin and in limited form across the country. The second was the British, who played their own critical role in the event by falling into the propaganda trap that the rebels had laid, and fulfilling almost every prophecy that the martyrs had offered in the months before. In the next episode, we'll see exactly what methods were used by the British to deal with the rebel leaders, and how it was viewed not just in Ireland, but by those in Britain as well. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.